Alrighty, I'm going to have uh, Beck is going to come and read uh, the reading for us this morning, and uh, welcome to, if you're listening online or watching online, Beck's just going to read the first four verses to introduce first, and then I'm going to say a few words before we read the rest. Um, So I'm reading Mark 13, verses 1 to 4 right now. Um, As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the wall. Jesus replied, Yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of one on another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? So, thanks, Beck. If you just hang around for a second. Before we go on to the rest of the chapter, um, what we're going to read today is one long speech uh, that Jesus gives, Mark chapter 13. And I want to just talk about this intro that we've just read, the first four verses. Jesus has just finished responding to, um, to questions from the Jewish leaders in the temple. Uh, who, and, and he's, he's criticised them quite severely as to the way they live and what they've been uh, talking about. Um, but it's what Jesus says here, just in what we've just read, which is actually what leads them not to just not like him, but to want to kill him. It's where Jesus says, this temple will be destroyed. Um, and they don't like that very much. A number of weeks ago, we read the passage where Jesus first steps into the temple and he says, this, this house is to be a house of prayer. My father's house is to be a house of prayer. Um, the temple was to be a place of God's presence, of reverence for God, not of human progress. And Mark Sayers, Australian pastor and author, says that human progress is like the polar opposite of God's presence, going after the blessings of God without God. Um, but Jesus' plan was not to just uh, redeem the temple, to go in and, and, and shuffle out all the money changes and the religiosity and just turn it back into a place of reverence and worship and prayer. Jesus' plan was to replace it altogether, and that's what got him killed. Uh, it's also what led to the hostility towards the early church in the early years after Jesus' death and resurrection. They didn't consider the temple to be right at the centre of the faith anymore. God was changing the rules. He was changing how he revealed himself, changing where he dwelt. And Jesus, upon leaving the temple, we just read that he he says it's going to be destroyed, and then he moves on to the Mount of Olives. This meant that he would have left the temple through the east gate of the temple area. Now, to us, this means nothing. Okay, so what? He went east, not west. But Any Jews with a knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures in that time would have seen what was happening here. In the book of Ezekiel, there's this dramatic description of God's abandonment of the temple. And as the chariot throne of God and his glory rises up from inside the temple, pauses at the east gate and comes to rest on the mountain east of the city. And so... There's this allusion to that passage in Ezekiel. Now again, the divine presence is withdrawn from the temple out the east gate towards the mountain as the temple is left to its destruction. It's an amazing image. And Jesus here is is doing the same thing, the divine one, leaving to the east, out to the mountain, leaving the temple. 
Jesus, he said elsewhere, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. And so I wanted to just give that introduction of what we, with what we just read before we read the next 33 verses, because otherwise we'd forget the, the important verse 4. Um, that introduction about his exit from the temple, um, so that we can now read this as, what is that greater, that something greater than the temple actually going to look like? If the divine presence, if God himself has left the temple, has gone out into the world, what does that mean? What is that going to look like? If that's what this final discourse is about, um, well, that is what this final discourse is about. It's right before the Passover begins. It's right before Jesus is taken to the cross and his death. And we're actually not going to spend that much more time in the coming weeks on those passages um, because we spent time there in Easter. We're just going to, at Easter time, we're just going to do a kind of a final wrap up. And so I say all that because today, this chapter 13 is really the last chapter part that we're going to properly study, having started in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, all the way back in February, we now come almost to the end. Uh, And I want you to listen close, because at this last scene of Jesus talking, spending time with his disciples before he goes on to the cross and his resurrection, he talks about how God's presence is going to go out on the earth, into all the earth. And what we're about to read may not be what we had in mind when we think of God's beautiful, loving, peaceful presence going out into the world. So listen carefully as Beck reads for us, and uh, then we'll have a talk about it. Thanks, Beck. Jesus replied, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nations will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at the time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The end is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house of Tupac. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter, for there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world. And it will never be so great again. In fact, 
Unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of, of his chosen ones, he will shorten those days. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out. I have warned you about this ahead of time. At that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will, go, will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the power in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the, from the scene before these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard, stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will return, in the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone. Watch for him. This is the word of the Lord. So, Father, this is what we might call or what you might call a hard word. So we pray you would help us to understand it, but not just to understand it, to accept it, and not just to accept it, but to embrace it. And, Lord, I ask that this morning... As I speak from your word, and ask your Holy Spirit to guide my words, there'll be less of me, more of you, and that the attention would be on you, Lord Jesus, and your heart for us. I pray you'd open our ears and our hearts to receive a revelation of your character, your heart for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, is this what we've just read? what God's presence filling the earth looks like. People deceiving others, nations at war, lovers of God being physically beaten, families divided, fleeing in fear, the sun darkened, stars falling from the sky, etc., etc. Is this, is this what it is? What we've just read is not exactly, certainly not what I imagine when I think of God beautifully filling all things everywhere. God's presence is love and light and beauty and joy. So what is all this? Anybody else wonder that? Jesus left the temple, this picture, this image of the divine presence going out into the world. What is this then? And this isn't a chapter, clearly, that you read and go, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. 
I don't know, maybe for you, I'm not sure, but um, the, the amount of Old Testament allusions, allusions to Old Testament passages, and we are not as familiar with all of them these days. We don't live in a Jewish mindset like then. It's all a bit cryptic. It's, it's similar to what people in Jesus' day referred to sometimes as apocalyptic literature, end of the world stuff, Jesus returning, like in the book of Revelation. But that's not what it's all about. It's not just a cryptic end of the world description. Depending on which scholar you read, and believe me, there's hundreds of them who have written on this passage over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, most or even all of this chapter is Jesus' response to one of his followers asking, when is this going to happen, the destruction, the destruction of the temple, the replacement of the temple? And this chapter is, for the most part, Jesus' pastoral response on how to navigate the now, how to navigate this generation what to watch for, how to respond now that the divine presence is out in the world. It's broken out of the temple. It's just a little bit hard to, to know exactly what he's saying with all the imagery and it being a bit cryptic. Let me ask you this. When Jesus steps out of the temple through the east gate onto the mountain, alluding to God's presence exiting the temple in Ezekiel, is it just a symbol that one day, future from now, God's presence would fill the earth. Or when the curtain was torn in two, when Jesus breathed his last breath and said, it is finished, the curtain behind which the presence of God dwelt, when that was torn in two, was that just symbolic that one day God's presence would be released from just being withheld to the temple and go out into the world? At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down, onto the believers and they spoke in other tongues and saw miracles. Was that just a taste or symbolic of what would really happen one day in our future? Are we just living in a grit your teeth, wait for Jesus to come back era where God really isn't present in this world, we're just waiting until he comes back? Or is God actually filling the world with his presence right now? Is he actually present around us? What do we believe? When we read this passage, we might think, well, I don't know, maybe it's actually grit your teeth time because what we just read sounds like God's a bit absent and we just need to knuckle down and, and get on with it and, and, and pray, Jesus, come back, please. Or maybe we, we just revert into kind of grit your teeth mode because it doesn't feel like it's happening yet. We feel like the disciple who says, Jesus, when are these things going to happen? When are you going to fill the world with it? When is the temple, the old system where God is, is boxed in, going to be done away with? And Jesus' response is given to help us understand what it actually looks like when it is happening. Not to say, keep waiting, keep praying, keep gritting your teeth until I fill the world one day. He's saying, this is what it going to look like when God does break out of the temple. So why all the stuff in this passage? Well, let me give a few analogies. If you go to a sporting match, cricket, football, rugby, whatever it might be, especially if it's a really big one, what happens when the home team run out onto the ground? Give me, give me an example. Home team runs out on the ground. Hey! Now let's say it's, what's one of the biggest rivalries? Um, let's, I don't know much about rugby, but I've heard Aussies and England, that's a pretty big rivalry. So let's say we're in Australia and England run out onto the field. What happens then? 
Yeah, yeah. And depending on how rabid the supporters are and how serious the, the, the game is, it could not be just boo, it could be like, you know, obscenities and all sorts of, you know, bad things against them. What about um, something even more serious than, than a sports game? What about in a war? If an enemy from another land starts to invade the land um, of, of someone there, what happens? There's, a, there's a, re- a rebellion, right? There's an attack back. There's a, there's a battle that starts as one invades the land of another. Maybe another analogy would be the schoolyard. Maybe you were one of the year nine kids and your patch was the basketball court at lunchtime. And one day, the year 10 kids decided they would invade your patch and try and take the basketball court for, for, for themselves, right? That's war, right? When you invade someone, someone else invades your patch. Those examples I give because when God dwelt in the temple, it was all dandy. The rest of the world, when God's just contained to the temple in Jerusalem, the rest of the world is happily ruled by its masters, you and I, and most significantly, the enemy of God, Satan, the deceiver, the destroyer. What Jesus is saying is that when God starts to invade the patch of another master, it ain't going to be pretty. And he wants to prepare his followers for this. Not to assume that when God breaks out into the world, it'll just be, oh, it's wonderful. No, it'll be a battle. Why does God, Jesus want to prepare his followers for this? Is it so that they can stay safe? Is it so that they can avoid the clash of kingdoms that's going to happen? No, he wants them to be on the front lines. He wants them to be carriers of his presence into a world where he is not welcome, where he is not initially the master and the Lord. And he helps them prepare for this. Let me talk briefly about the reading itself, and it's going to be the quickest reading. Uh, um, thing of this passage is complicated I can possibly do. Um, I tried to do a bunch of reading on this. There's hundreds of people who have written on this over hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm not even going to attempt to explain it, um, everything in it, because what's more important here is how Jesus is calling us to follow him. Here's a summary of what Jesus says in response to the question. The question is when? When are these things going to happen? When are you going to replace the temple? And Jesus basically goes through and first he says, not yet. Because he wants them to focus on the now. He wants to watch for them to watch for certain things in the meantime. He says, but then other things will happen. Still, stay focused on what's important now. And finally, he answers the question of when with then. And the answer is this. Everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. took about 20 verses, but finally that's essentially his answer to the question of when is this temple going to be replaced. Then this will happen in this generation. Next slide. Yep. And then the end of the world stuff will happen at a completely unknown time. So you guys stay focused on the now. And the word he uses most is watch or watch out. I share that simply to point out this. The focus here is not on some futuristic, what's going to happen one day. It's this, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory in this generation. Now, what's that mean? Because isn't Jesus coming down on the clouds of glory a, sort of a picture from the, like from Revelation, which is about his return sometime? Well, actually, no, it's not. It's a reference in the book of Daniel, from the book of Daniel. And it's about a change of government, if you like, a change of authority, the temple and all that it stood for is out and the Son of Man, Jesus, is in. Now we could spend weeks 
literally weeks studying all of the stuff in this passage. And, and I pray you maybe do your own research. What, what does some of this stuff mean? Because it is confusing. But let's just cut through all that for today and say here's the point. Jesus is establishing his kingdom on the earth and that's what he wants us to focus on now. Jesus coming on the clouds of glory is happening. What it's essentially about is, is Jesus is establishing his, his kingship, his kingdom in place of another kingdom. And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. It's happening. It's today. It's now. And this is where he wants us to focus. Because it's not, going, it's not all going to be pretty. Jesus is invading someone else's patch. He's invading enemy territory. There's resistance. And what he wants to do is he wants to prepare us for this. There's three themes, and this is what I hope we take away today, just three words. Three themes that Jesus highlights, three things he says we've got to embrace in this time that we live in. And they are persecution, proclamation, and perseverance. Before we go on and unpack those three things, I want to pause and say this. I, I pray, and I have been praying, that we get a vision this morning for why it's all worth it. Clearly, this is not going to be fun times. Um, and just, oh, it's all, it's all you know, fluff and bubbles or really beautiful and wonderful and joy-filled. It's, it's challenging stuff. But we are being invited to join with God as he fills the world with his presence. That's the invitation. And that's an incredible privilege. That's an incredible opportunity. If we have ever experienced what it's like to be in God's presence, that is pure joy and beauty and love and peace. And Jesus wants that for us. He wants us to experience closeness with God, being in his presence, being filled with his presence despite the battle involved. But we've got to embrace the hard stuff. We've got to embrace the challenge if we want to experience his presence, the joy, the peace, the love. And so I pray that we see that this morning, just not go, oh, that's really difficult, so why would I go there? Well, we'll go there because the vision of being in the presence of God, living closely with him. First, let's talk about uh, persecution. This is where Jesus goes first. Persecution is not something we experience in Australia, basically. Not really. Mean comments on Facebook because of your faith is not persecution, really. Persecution is much deeper than that. Um, But how much of this lack of persecution that we face in this country, in this land, is because we are simply choosing a path that avoids it? See, Jesus' first warning is this. He says, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah. He's warning them not to turn to saviours that make false promises, essentially. And when the real Messiah promises you persecution, resistance, pushback, hard stuff, a false Messiah's promise sounds pretty good, right? Because a false Messiah can promise, just skip the hard stuff. Skip, skip straight to the good stuff. But if we don't understand that Jesus puts us headfirst into a spiritual battle, then other things or people can steal our worship without us even realizing it. Let me say that again. If we don't understand that Jesus puts us headfirst into spiritual battle, wants us to embrace 
the pushback. Other things or people can steal our worship and we don't even realize it. We don't realize that we're just taking the easy option and looking to a false messiah, an idol. I ask myself, if I ask myself, okay, so day to day, any given day, where do I go to receive comfort? Who do I turn to for provision in my life? Where do I, get the, where do I spend the majority of my, my thoughts and my attention? It's not always, if I'm honest, the true Messiah. It's false saviors. It's idols. It's false uh, uh, messiahs. Things that promise all of the joy of God's presence without the pushback, without the battle. And for me, I, I, I know that for me, and I presume many of you would identify with this, that sometimes the greatest battle is in here. John talked this morning about having the mind of Christ. Sometimes the greatest battle is in our mind. Sometimes what I, I sense what I need to do to serve Jesus, to obey his principles, to obey his word. But it seems too ludicrous. It seems too irresponsible. It seems too against the grain and too out there or radical. Maybe you too feel drawn by God to live simply, to trust him completely. But there's this voice whether it's your voice or someone else's voice, it's like, don't be silly. That's too, that's too out there. And there's, from this voice, a promise of comfort and peace that will allow you to avoid the pushback and the persecution. But that voice is a false saviour. It's a false messiah. I read a book recently, and the author, it's called The Power of Moments. Highly recommend this book. The author says this, Beware the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. I love being reasonable. It's very reasonable to be reasonable. Beware the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. Maybe experiencing God's presence and his kingdom as he fills the world with it might take some being quite unreasonable. And when the pushback comes, we actually need to Embrace it. Jesus is calling us to embrace even persecution. The second thing Jesus calls us to embrace is proclamation. The good news must be preached to all nations. The good news isn't just a message to pass on. I thought this for so many years. It's, it's just the message. It's just the, the and we've got to kind of pass it on so people can make their... The good news is far more than that. The good news is the very... The gospel is the very power of God. When we declare that Jesus has come to eradicate the darkness of this world, has come to bring someone from death to life, literally, and, and restore their relationship with God that's been broken, when you, when you proclaim that, you're not just talking about God. God is literally entering the room through your words. The power of the proclamation of the gospel is that God is in it. But we, we, the thing about persecution and proclamation is that I think we have been trained to think Somehow, by someone, I'm not sure exactly how, but we've been trained to think that the, proclam- the persecution comes when we do the proclamation, that if we go around telling people about Jesus, that that's when the pushback will come. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. He says that when we follow Jesus in a countercultural way, that from the persecution, the opportunity is given for us to proclaim the gospel. Let's read. Jesus uh, says this, when these things begin to happen, watch out. You'll be handed over to local councils, beaten in the synagogues. You'll stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news 
must first be preached to all nations, but when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time, for it's not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit will be speaking as you stand in the middle of persecution and now proclaim good news. I highlighted this quote from one writer on this passage. He says this, The persecution expected is not a sequel to the universal proclamation of the good news, but rather the context within which it will be achieved. In other words, as we enter the spiritual battle, then the opportunity to proclaim the gospel arises. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you should go just do ludicrous things for the sake of doing ludicrous things so that people get annoyed by you and now somehow you can preach the gospel to them. But ask yourself this. Are you finding yourself in situations where you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone? If that's not the case, or if that is the case, it's a good test of whether whether the idols in your life have truly been uh, destroyed. If we're finding ourselves in places where we have an opportunity to share Jesus, it's a good indication that we're actually living as followers of Christ and then the world is butting against us. Another, just an example of an idol that can still exist without us having destroyed it is status or value in the eyes of another. You know, I share this about this one often because it's what I deal with so often. Jesus says, everyone will hate you because you're my followers. So it's easier, in my opinion, to just not follow Jesus and then you can be loved by others, loved and praised by other people. But here's the promise of the true Messiah not a false one, the true Messiah. You will receive, this is from the book of Acts, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, through Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You want to experience God's presence in your life. Have you considered that we most wonderfully experience his closeness, his presence, when we live not for the approval of others, but when we embrace Christ's likeness and proclaim the gospel to others? then God is so present with us in proclamation. And that's what the true Messiah offers. He offers his presence, his closeness in persecution when we embrace it, in proclamation when we embrace that. And there's one thing left, and that's to persevere. And this is a theme through what Jesus says in today's passage. Endure, persevere, keep going. This won't last forever. And yes, at some time unknown. He will return, and the tussle between the two kingdoms will end. But the call to persevere, sometimes we think it's like a, a call to just grit our teeth and, and, and you know, buckle down until this, you know, the, the issues in this world all go away. But the call to persevere comes in the context of us already embracing pers- persecution and proclamation. It's not just a hold tight while I deal with the problems in the world, it's a embrace persecution and the pushback, the spiritual battle, embrace proclamation that comes out of that, and as you do that, continue to persevere, endure, keep going, my son or daughter. He'll be with you as you just keep going. So is this challenging? Yes. <laughs> is it uncomfortable? Yep. But what I hope... and. I guess my goal for today was to, to try and point to the reason Jesus wants us to embrace persecution, proclamation, perseverance. Because that's where he's truly with us. 
He's present with us in this as we embrace this. And when we're in the presence of God, when his presence is most unrestrained in us, and the Holy Spirit is working through us, that is what we're meant for. It's what we're made for. It's our purpose. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So what I want to do to finish this morning is just read a few of the key verses from this passage again, which capture what Jesus is calling us to. And and I've just been praying this morning that what God will do is God will speak to you and I through his word now and show you what he wants you to do with this. It might be that you are being called to proclaim the gospel to unreached people groups. Just putting it out there. It might be that it's a neighbour who you just know it's time to make sure they know you're a Christian and you want them to experience life in Christ. It, 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 may, be, um, it, it may be anything. But as we read this, this, uh, these few verses again and just listen for God's prompting, I want to ask just one thing. Beware the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. Here is God's word. Watch out. You'll be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. When you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Father, we commit ourselves to you this morning afresh to embrace the battle That happens when we as carriers of your presence go into a world where other masters rule. We commit ourselves to you to be people who will proclaim the good news that you bring dead people to life, that you bring those who are blind into a place where they can see because you have bridged the gap between us as people who have sinned and been separated from God to be able to come into the presence of God again because you transfer your righteousness to us. We proclaim that good news. We commit ourselves to proclaim that good news and we commit ourselves to keep going, to endure, to persevere, to keep on smashing the idols in our life, declaring good news not just to others but to ourselves, asking for your forgiveness every day, every minute, and for the grace to empower us to live and preach the good news. Give us perseverance, give us endurance in the road ahead, we pray. And Lord, remind us of this gospel that we have received that has transformed our life. That Once we were blind and now we see, once we were dead but now we're alive because of your blood and because you rose to life as the first one to to be raised to new life. As we sing now, Lord, we, uh, we just ask that you would fill us once again with your Holy Spirit, 
that we would again experience your presence. If it's been a while since we feel we've been close to you, Lord, would you just wash over us this morning. Fill us again with your spirit that we may know the transforming power of Christ in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The team's going to lead us in song.